There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is spirituality and psychiatry. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing psychiatrist Professor Suvira Ramlal. Suvira is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and the clinical head of specialized psychiatry at King Dinuzulu Hospital Complex in Durban. She's the current president of the College of Psychiatrists, and she co-manages the KwaZulu-Natal branch of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. So, Vera, welcome, and thank you for joining us. I'm going to start out with a, a brief statement, and then we can get into the conversation. Now, you co-edited a book with uh, Therisha Naidu called Talk Therapy Toolkit, a counseling and psychotherapy primer published by uh, Van Skyke in 2016. One of the chapters is titled From Psyche to Soul, Spirituality and Psychotherapy. And the title of that chapter ties in with a presentation that you gave back in 2019. I was present at that uh, presentation. It was a South African Society of Psychiatrists meeting where you spoke about the need when attempting to understand a patient that it was necessary to explore the person behind the presentation, their true identity, thus their spiritual life. And you went on to note that a key component of alleviating suffering is an understanding of the spiritual realm of existence and the individual quest for meaning, all of which I must say I agree with. But just to kind of set the framework for the conversation, how do you understand spirituality? Thank you, Christopher, for having me on this platform. And uh, it's really a pet topic of mine and really a something I'd love to share with uh, your listeners. So I think perhaps the most succinct definition one could get of spirituality is the science of the soul, as stated by Swami Vivekananda. But for a lot of people, the whole term soul has many negative associations and associations with religion. And I think religion has fallen into disfavor for a variety of reasons. Mm. So definition of spirituality, my understanding, it speaks of one's personal quest or journey in search of answers to the ultimate questions about life, about meaning, about who we are, our relationship with not just each other, but also with our environment, the physical environment, as well as the sacred and the transcendent environment, the whole metaphysical realm. And I like going back to the roots of words, the etymology. And if you see spirituality comes from the word spiritus, Mm-hmm. Uh, which in Latin means the breath of life. And in the Eastern traditions, we speak of this breath of life as prana, which is the life-giving force, or chi, or ki. And it refers to that essential life force that pervades all living organisms, whereby we are all actually interconnected. So spirituality, as I said, really, for me, comprises two core pillars, one to our identity, right? And in that respect, are we human beings or are we spiritual beings? And then secondly, the meaning. 
what are we and therefore why are we here? What is our purpose on, on this planet? Right. I like that, the science of the soul. I don't think I've ever heard spirituality kind of defined in that way or, or thought of in that way. So that's, a, that's something new for me, and I like it very much. You mentioned religion, and obviously there's been a, a shift, I suppose, in one's connection to religion and this whole issue of, well, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And so what would you say is the distinction between spirituality and religion? So, you know, I spoke earlier about identity, and we have this duality that I'm a human being versus a spiritual being. So we are spiritual beings here in human guise. And my understanding or explanation for religion is man's translation of transcendental and mystical truth into a language that humans can understand, uh, into material, concrete symbols and activities and rituals. It's quite a... um, huge bridge to divide from where we are as material mortal beings to that transcendent immortal realm. And so I believe that man created religion as a developmental construct to help us to be able to aspire to that abstract realm. But sadly, what has happened is that we have lost the plot in the process. So if you re- I regard religion as a bridge a bridge that unites our human self to our spiritual self. And we are meant to cross that bridge. How, using religion as concrete tools, tools that uh, humans can understand to get across and to merge in our true identity. But however, what's happened is a lot of us have decided to just remain on that bridge. We've built empires there, power gifts to us, greed. There's been abuse of power in the guise of religion. Um, and some of the spiritual values have been diluted and contaminated by lower human behavior and values. So as much as the intention was good initially, you know, I think more people have been killed uh, in religious wars than from any other cause. We yep. somehow lost the plot. And I think that is why religion has of late fallen into disfavor and people are preferring to align themselves or describe themselves as being spiritual rather than religious. But I do think it's important that everybody is on a different level in terms of their spiritual quest. So just as uh, you know, an infant requires building blocks and his abacus to learn how to count, but as he grows and develops, then he can do calculations mentally, abstractly. So in the same way, religion should be seen as a developmental thing. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. Yeah, I think that's very important. So what I wanted to say was that religion is a pathway towards spirituality in a sense. That being religious doesn't necessarily mean that you're a deeply spiritual person because at the end of the day you may engage in certain rituals which define specific religions, but that doesn't make you necessarily spiritual or connected in the way that you've been describing. That's how I would look at it. Would you agree with that? No, I agree. I think, you know, as I said, the intention was good. And if we go to the core truths of each religion, and religion is man-made, they do contain the eternal spiritual truths. But because, as I said, man's ego gets in the way, and then they have been open to human interpretation, misinterpretation. So a lot of the, the core cardinal spiritual truths and values have actually been distorted 
through interpretation via the human mind, which I think is a very, very inferior computer when you are looking at lofty transcendental issues. So I mentioned earlier in something that you had said about the alleviation of suffering. In order to do that, one one should kind of pursue an understanding of the spiritual realm of existence and the individual quest for meaning. So my understanding there is that the role of suffering, and I do believe it has a role, as a means of growth, not something to simply be alleviated, but also to be understood as part of one's growth. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, I think that's an important question, Christopher. And I think we, we must start off by making a distinction between suffering and pain. Right. Right? Pain is inevitable. Pain is what happens to us, you know, at an emotional level or physical level. It's the normal wear and tear of human life. And I conversely, suffering is what we do with the pain right? and the meaning we attach to that pain. And here in that spiritual dimension where I mentioned about meaning previously. Mm. And uh, you may be aware of Nietzsche's famous quotation where he says, to live is to suffer. To live a human life is to suffer. And to survive is to find meaning. Because he who has a why can bear any how. And if you look historically at historical figures, even the religious figures, Jesus, Abraham, Gandhi, um, Buddha, all of them had lives that were not smooth sailing. Uh, They actually intensely. They had extreme hardships while in their human form. But rather than using them as stumbling blocks, they used them as stepping stones to inquire, to go deeper, to go higher and try and find what is the meaning of the suffering. So it comes back to meaning as to why are we here on this planet? What is our purpose? And, you know, several saintly figures have, have mentioned that the planet Earth is actually a school for the human soul. And we all know school is difficult. We've all uh, struggled with trying to navigate new knowledge and similarly for spiritual knowledge. And unfortunately, some of the lessons that our souls need to learn can best be exposed or uh, highlighted in the context of such struggle. And it's sad, however, that we've become a society that's so averse to... Feeling and being with our pain. I think you see that with the COVID pandemic as well. Are we a society that's driven by impetus to avoid pain at any cost, to anesthetize it, to medicate it away, to deny it? And I just feel if people could just stay with their pain, you know, it's a source of great wisdom because it takes you away to your immortal self. We all know when we are born that we are going to die. That's an inevitability. And yet there is so much of grief and suffering when we lose somebody to death. I'm not meant to be insensitive to death no. not because we have attachment, but we do need to see death in a temporal perspective and in the context of our immortal self, which is the soul versus our mortal self. You know, one lifetime is one year of schooling or one grade. All yes. right. And then when you finish one grade, it's not the end of the world. If you pass, you will qualify and get to the next grade. And I think we all want to aspire to the highest in terms of our secular education. So why not our spiritual education? But it is tough and it's worth the price at the end, all those struggles, because we do reach a new state of enlightenment. So as I said. But I think you've highlighted something very important, which is this idea that we can live these pain-free, 
risk-free lives, that there's a solution for every problem, and therefore everything should just be pleasant and sweet. And the reality is life is not like that. And I think some of our most meaningful growth and learning comes from how we respond to difficulty, how we respond to struggle, how we actually engage with whatever pain we experience in a given situation and how we rise above that. And I think that this is something which I suppose we need to, and it may sound strange, but we're talking about actually embracing this because this is the pathway to growth. I'm not sure if I've understood you correctly or if I'm thinking in a way that you would agree with. Exactly. I totally agree, Christopher, but you have to be very careful about how you present this to people because they think you're very sadistic or masochistic. And that you're insensitive to their pain. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to say. I'm, I'm not a sadist. I don't wish pain on others. I don't derive pleasure from seeing others in pain. And I'm definitely not a masochist. I'm not looking for pain. But the truth is, there is going to be pain in life. That's just the reality of it. And I think to assume that you can sugarcoat everything and walk away from this or bypass it, I think is unrealistic. And maybe part of the expectation of such a life is part of the problem when you actually encounter these situations where you actually have no choice. You've got to engage and you've got to actually make sense of it in order to move past it as a hopefully better, not bitter person. Yeah, no, that's great. I think there's several important points that flash in my mind from what you have said. We can't run away from our problems. You know, Freud mentioned repetition compulsion, which is a term he used, where we constantly will be attracted to similar challenges. Mm. And where is that impulse coming from? So in spiritual terms, the earth school requires that you pass all the stages of your development. There's no corruption in our system, the soul system, because you have to pass. You can't be kind of bumped up because the statistics require you to have a certain pass rate. Right. So we will continue to attract certain lessons in our life, either in one life, or if we are unable to achieve that particular milestone yes. that we set out uh, to achieve, it will come back in a future life. And I often sit across patients, and you, you can listen from their narratives, how they're constantly attracting similar traumatic situations into their lives. And they actually don't see that pattern. Right. And it's simply the fact that if you don't deal with it, it is going to come back. It's only going to go away once you have mastered whatever the lesson is in that. But my other concern, you know, from, from what you're saying is my fear about where we're heading to in our, in our discipline, uh, mm. both medical and psychiatric, right. is our tendency to want to medicalize everything and find a magic bullet for every problem. I have no problems whatsoever with the modern technology and the treatments that have given hope and relief of suffering for, for millions of people for a variety of conditions. But it is not the ultimate. Yes, relieve your suffering with whatever latest drug or technology you can uh, access. But you don't stop at providing uh, relief for just the human body and human emotions. There's also the soul, because I do believe that diseases, our emotions, are all communication channels from our higher self to guide us towards the lessons that we do need to uh, navigate through and to transcend. So that is the spiritual quest. Mm -hmm. I'm very drawn to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
And I, I almost think it, it needs to be obligatory reading <laughs> at the schools so that people understand human suffering and how it provides for, and certainly in the book, how he describes his suffering providing a, a source for survival, talking about the human spirit and ultimately growth so that we actually, we don't look for struggle, but if we encounter it, we understand that there's a way to to engage with it and to make it meaningful and to move forward to an even higher level than where we were before. And so, as I said, I'm very taken with uh, Viktor Frankl's writings, and I often encourage people who are struggling to actually read the book. It's short, but it's profound. I'm not sure if you've read the book, but certainly it's got a lot of meaning for me. And I think in terms of some of the work that I do with patients, I've often recommended that they get a copy of the book and then we can discuss it. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are on on that, but I'm talking about a specific book now, which is a, a classic in its own way. I absolutely agree with you there, Christopher. You shouldn't ask me if I've read the book. You should ask me how many times I've read it from the days of my registrar training. I know. And I really think it, it epitomizes, uh, you know, what our lives should be like, and I always use that as an example to patients and to registrars to say that if a man can undergo that degree of suffering and still emerge wise and non-judgmental and forgiving, uh, what more illustration do you want of the the importance of learning from your suffering? And uh, Frankl says that we the last of human freedom is to choose our attitude, yes. and our attitude will be informed by what meaning we attach to our day-to-day experiences, whether they're good or bad. But I I think society as a whole, we we live in a world that that wants comfort. We want instant gratification. We also have a tendency to want to hold on to our wounds. And uh, Carolyn Mace calls this woundology, where somehow these wounds that we we, uh, incur in in life's uh, battle become like little trophies for us. You know, they, they give us a lot of benefits. You know, you get sick leave, you can get boarded off, you get other privileges. And that retards the motivation to actually want to heal. And we also have a society that's very much inclined towards victimhood. Mm-hmm. Once again, there are lots of benefits to being a victim. And I really feel that people who, there are lots of people who have been victims of many things over life. And, you know, the deciding factor is what attitude they have. They could either transcend that and become great people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi. And if you look at Oprah Winfrey's life uh, itself, her life, she had major uh, challenges that she experienced. She could have come out bitter and wounded and disabled on the one hand, but she chose differently. And I must remind you of, of the, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dobrovsky's uh, theory of positive disintegration. Well, you can elaborate. He, he noticed that some individuals fell apart. He, he was looking in the context of the Polish war. Right. And he felt that while some individuals fell apart, others experienced meaningful personal growth from that experience. And he that's prodded him to ask why. And that's when he came out with this whole theory of positive disintegration. Sometimes we have to fall apart, you know, about uh, the challenges of human life that cause us to literally or figuratively fall apart. But then there is our challenge that how do we put ourselves back together in um, a more whole way? And, you know, from his work grew this branch of post-traumatic growth. 
which I think is particularly relevant for us as a discipline of psychiatry because it's almost like we have these different flavors of the month diagnosis and we went through a whole phase of where post-traumatic stress disorder was really in vogue. And people just feel it's inevitable. If you've had a traumatic experience, then you must become ill. But we know that there's a very small percentage of people that actually develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So I think we do need to kind of broaden the lens with which we look and stop medicalizing all human experiences. Um, yes, there are some people that need the help and the added benefit of medication and medical treatment. But these are also opportunities for personal growth, psychological growth, and from their ritual growth. So that is my concern about where psychiatry is going, you know, in terms of increasing medicalization of conditions. I think that's very important, you know, not medicalizing experience as one potentially can. And I think the idea that we're talking about victims, we're not diminishing the experience, but we're saying one moves from victim to survivor. And I think that's very important. And that kind of ties in with the concept of post-traumatic growth, that one has to make sense, one has to find meaning, and one has to try to rise above and to, to move forward. And nobody said it's going to be easy. It's not easy. It's a struggle. But in the struggle, comes the growth, or through the struggle comes the growth, which I think is very important. The one thing you said earlier, and I'm just wanting to sort of come back to that, this whole issue of, of psychiatry as a medical discipline, we're also very strongly humanistic. And obviously, you know, there are certain situations where a patient may present with depression, but they may have existential issues, and I think you've noted that previously, that need to be addressed rather than simply saying they've got a disorder that must be medicated. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Because I know that that's something that does concern you. Yes, you know, I think one of the, the reasons I have been attracted to psychiatry is, uh, is our purported holistic approach to problems that patients present with. And we looked at Engel's model and he went biopsychosocial because yes. we do see the interconnectedness of biology, psychology, and mental activity. But you know, we, we now we're acknowledging um, that there is a spiritual dimension to our health as well. And we also are a society that wants scientific evidence for everything. Everything has to be evidence-based. Right. But if you look at the whole science of epigenetics, it tells you very clearly, it's not just what's in your genes, but that's the environment, the external environment and the internal environment, the world of thoughts and emotions, etc., which has a key impact on behavior, does ultimately affect genetic expression. Yes. So, I, you know, I think if we're really subscribing to the true definition of health, then we have to look at all the dimensions of our human selves as well as our spiritual selves um, and adopt a humanistic approach to all kinds of suffering, whether they're physical suffering or uh, emotional or psychiatric, however you want to label them. I suppose one of the concerns is that as a discipline, we're going to be reduced to a tick box diagnostic discipline. And what we're really talking about is that we have to look at the individual in front of us, the patient, in a much more holistic way in terms of getting the full picture, but also bringing the, the full spectrum of interventions, some of which may include medication, but we certainly need to go beyond that. Otherwise, we're operating in a very reduced, reductionistic, limited way, which I don't think necessarily serves the patient well. Although I do 
see in light of things we've been saying earlier, people do want to find comfort in a magic pill. Exactly. So I want to pick up on, on your point of, of the tick box discipline that we've become. And I feel very strongly, I fully appreciate the benefits that the DSM classification has in our human world. Just to clarify, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? The Diagnostic Manual. and Statistical Manual, yes, yes, which is a research tool, originally developed as a research tool, which I understand you do need to work with, you know, an evidence from an evidence base. But what it has done, especially in the realm of teaching psychiatry, is, as you say, reduce it to a tick box yes. uh, exercise where our students and our clinicians are looking just to tick off those boxes, make a diagnosis so that you can be reimbursed and with the diagnosis comes a particular set of medication. Mm. And it really has detracted from looking at the person that we are sitting across. You know, I think it was Anthony Storr who said, we are all fellow travelers on this journey. Mm. Uh, just because you sit on the other side of the desk or your couch doesn't mean that you're any less a traveler. So I do think that we need to, to focus on patients' narratives and also, given that we are fellow travelers, look at where in the journey they are and base our approach or our interventions to that. I'm not saying everybody's ready to um, navigate the lofty spiritual truth. There's a place where we, we can start. Yes. And unless we open up a space in our current consulting platforms to that dialogue, to that receptiveness, to that dialogue, we are going to deny many people the opportunity to grow. We will confine them to just believing that they have these disease states which can only be controlled by medication, and they will fail to grow as human beings, as spiritual beings. So I think as a profession, we do have that responsibility. It's unfortunate that you know there are lots of negative associations with religion, which then contaminated spirituality. So therefore, we, it was made to seem as a taboo subject with uh, psychiatry. And many of us now training, which we're told categorically, do not go into religion and spirituality. But, but I'm glad to say that now there are many psychiatric bodies throughout the world who have special interest groups on spirituality. So hopefully there will be more acceptance of this on the clinical and teaching platforms. Certainly, I see an increasing interest in spirituality within psychiatry. And as you say, it's operating on an international scale. And that in some way may have to do with the limitations of medication because medication can take you so far and then how do you complete the rest of the journey? And I do think that there's an increasing awareness that we need to go beyond what we've been led into understanding is the ultimate intervention, which would be potentially pharmacological. And I think that we're now starting to see that there are many more ways of looking at patients and understanding patients and understanding what more we can add, which doesn't require technological advancement, but just to return to some, some fundamental truths. I'm not sure how you would feel about that. Uh, no, I definitely agree with you. And I said it's, it's developmental. So if we look at the, the models, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, or if you look at the chakra system, we must be respectful that different people are at different stages, but mm. we must cater for those who have reached the higher realms. And also in terms of material achievement, a lot of, you know, as a society, we have advanced hugely technologically and materially. And we, we pursue a lot of this in the 
kind of uh, delusion that that's going to give us happiness and fulfillment. But what happens is that we have the Ferrari and we have the fancy houses and we have the expensive holidays, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but there's still something that eludes us. Yes. And that's the time where we should then say, listen, stop looking outward. We direct and channel all our energy outward towards the material world, and that drains us. Right. And we can't then find, we think it's a holiday that's going to help to recharge no, no. us, but it's not. And an analogy I often use is that we are, I'm not sure if you, you recall the, the advert where the little pink bunny plays uh, the drum right. and until the battery inside wears yes. out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want so, to mention the product you know, we, yet. We all, <laughs> we live under the delusion that we are the bunny. All right, we're not the bunny. We're the battery inside the bunny. All right, and yes, we way we live our lives, we need the bunny uh, bunny costume, but ultimately that bunny will grow old and that costume will be worn out. Uh, but that battery can be recharged because this is a wireless battery, and that is connected to, you know, not just your local router in the house, but to your ISP, the internet service provider. Yes. Uh, so I think we need to change that paradigm in terms of how we look at ourselves. And for me, a big concern is about this new kind of diagnosis or flavor of the month is burnout. Right. We went from, you know, where stress was in vogue. Everybody was fashionable almost to say, I'm suffering from stress. Then we went through depression and everybody was depressed and numbers are still rising. And then now we have this new pandemic that's going to be manifesting is burnout. And what is burnout? If you look at the definition, it speaks of energy. It's an energy crisis. Absolutely. So from our discussion, what I'm understanding is that there's, there's definitely something that each one of us can consider in our quest for better mental health. And I think that the issue of spirituality, we've kind of put it on the table now. It's a very real consideration and it's something that we can definitely all tap into. Severa, I want to thank you for joining us. It was great to host you. I know we could have spoken for longer. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and I hope that today's podcast has provided you with a greater awareness of this issue of spirituality and the potential role that it could play in enhancing your life. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram, OTC, sponsors of Brave. 